This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. It's 150,000 years ago. You're a Homo sapiens, hanging out in a really cozy clearing protected from behind by a cliff wall. It's a great spot, temperate, isolated, pretty safe. Lots of good fruits and tubers nearby. Should you just hang out here forever, maybe? Well, you could. But something's nagging at that medial frontal cortex of yours. There's a hill in the distance. What's beyond it? Something different, maybe? Something new and shiny? Maybe today you'll just take a quick peek. My guest today is neuroscientist David Eagleman. In The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World, David and his co-author Anthony Brandt explore that ancient tension between mastery and curiosity, the known and the unknown, and how the human imagination exploits it to make new things. Welcome to Think Again, David. Great. Great to be here. You talk in the book about creativity as being just a very ancient thing that is unique to, to humans. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about like why, why we need creativity, why we've, why we've been creative for so long? Yeah, the thing, that, the thing that I was very interested in is that if you fly over a forest, let's say, and, and you're looking down on the forest, it looks essentially the same as it did a million years ago. There are a bunch of animal species living there and they're living through the same kind of days that they've always lived. But then you get to the city that you're arriving in, like London or New York or something, and it looks like a motherboard has risen out of the earth. And, and there's only one species on the planet that's doing this kind of thing, and that's us. And the question is why? And so it has a little bit to do with opposable thumbs and larynx, but it's much more fundamentally to do with the structure of the human brain, which is very similar to other animal brains, but there's just these little tweaks, these little algorithmic differences that have made all the difference. So um, just in, in a sentence, it's that the human cortex, which is the wrinkly part on the outside of the brain, that has expanded enormously in our recent evolution. And um, there's essentially two results of that. One is that we've got a lot more space between input and output. So we don't have to act reflexively uh, like many of our animal cousins do when an input comes in. Instead, we get to chew on ideas and, and have ideas come in and we think about them and we mash them together with other ideas and we may or may not make an output. The other thing that's really important is we developed a really huge prefrontal cortex. That's the area right behind the forehead. And that is what allows us to disengage from our moment in uh, space and time 
and to think about possible futures, to think about what ifs, what could be, stuff like that. And, and, and those two things together, it, they're very small tweaks, but this has allowed us to go off on this runaway trajectory where suddenly, instead of just experiencing the world and reacting to it, we are thinking about possible worlds. And, and this is essentially the fountainhead of human creativity. I'm going to I'm going to put my cards on the table right here and and say that, like, I, I where I think I may differ from your book is that it seems to me that creativity has gotten into gotten us as a species into about as much trouble as it's gotten us out of over the years. Like you're you the book celebrates creative, amazing creative achievements and discoveries and art and inventions and so on. Not so much on the creativity of, say, weapons design and those kinds of things. I wonder how you'd, how you'd respond to that. So let me ask you this, Jason. Would you rather be alive 10,000 years ago <laughs> or, or now? Right. I mean, we are... It's good that we have the medical science that we have. It's good that I can talk to you from many miles away. We are also capable of horror on a much greater scale than perhaps we ever were before. I, I guess at the individual level, maybe humans are maybe individual humans are suffering some percentage less than they than they once were. Maybe a, a large percentage, huge percentage less. <laughs> I mean, just look at things like just look at things like child mortality or something. The chances that you'd have a child that would survive to adulthood were very small. The average lifespan for a person was thirty something years old. You know, Alexander the Great died when he was thirty something. So, in in a hundred million ways, our world now is so much better than it was ten thousand years ago. Um, and the good news is that, you know, of course, violence has been going down. So Steven Pinker wrote this great book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he statistically looks at this. And despite all the horrors of the 20th century and all the horrors of what we see around us now, it's a lot better than it used to be. We, you and I right now are talking, but we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, some some bearded horsemen riding in and, and cutting us down with, uh, you know, machetes. That's just not going to happen to us right now. So um, the world's actually gotten a lot better. And it's because of it's because of all these ways that we're able to shape things as a species in terms of legislation and crafting our society to be useful for billions of brains uh, to, to run around the planet and do things together. And of course, ethically, you know, we've had this long journey of our morality increasing as a species, which has actually been quite recent, right? I mean, just, just in terms of human rights and equality, it's extremely recent that we're able to suddenly make it so that it's a, it's a better world for everybody. I, I guess what I'm what I'm gonna say, and I don't, and and maybe we'll we'll leave this binary here soon because I don't want to turn into I don't want to turn this into like you're in California, I'm in New York. I don't want to turn this into like New York cynicism versus California optimism here. But my concern, and maybe the concern of a lot of people, I don't know if you saw that spate of articles in the New York Times last weekend, New York Times last weekend with like Farhad Manju and other people talking about, you know, concerns or people, there's a, some accelerating concerns around technology because of Facebook and, and the business with Russia in the recent election. It seems that as our creativity technologically accelerates, the scale on which we're able to make change increases. And I'm not sure that our moral progress necessarily has uh, is at the same pace, you know. So my concern is that you know the changes that are coming to us through our cell phones, through other things, are happening so rapidly that we have no idea what the externalities really are. 
Yeah, I mean, the general thing I would say is that we're this incredibly creative species, and it's difficult to know exactly where all this will lead. The only thing we have is our historical evidence, which shows that for every step backwards we take, we're taking many, many steps forward, and uh, things things are improving. Um, you know, but of course, there's no guarantee of that. I mean, suddenly we might, you know, reach the singularity and AI takes over and we become their pets and that's the end of it. But, uh, but we'll see where this goes. Yeah. In some, in some sense, I'm not even, um, I, I'm not trying to advertise creativity as this wonderful thing. I'm just pointing out that somehow our species is so different than every other species on the planet. Um, and I'm not even trying to imply that other animals aren't creative because they are in their little, in their smaller ways. But boy, when you look at, you know, the question of why, why don't cows go to the moon? Why don't squirrels invent the internet? Why don't, uh, you know, octopi put on theater plays for other octopi and so on? We're, we're the only ones who are doing lots of stuff that no one else is doing. You know, my goal is just to get a better understanding of that. I want to I want to talk to you um, a bit about first of all there you you talk about how the way that humans uh, this was relatively new to me this idea the way that humans create is through bending breaking and blending right that there are these three modalities that we have can you talk a little bit about that about how we're constrained by that and how we're constrained by what's what what's available to us from you know in the environment and the past and then how what we do with that one of the things that my co-author tony brant and i've been very interested in is what is actually happening in the human brain that allows us to cook up all these possible futures and you know different ways of of mashing things together so what we propose is this framework of bending breaking and blending which is to say you absorb the world around you and then you mash it up in these in these particular ways to get new ideas. And so um, let's start with the, the absorbing the world around you. It is the case that we are all vessels of, uh, of our own space and time, which is to say we absorb the culture around us. And this is why when you look at, for example, you know, 19th century Japanese painting versus 19th century British painting versus uh, Kenyan painting versus... Um, uh, you know, um, Chinese painting. Th these are all extremely different from one another. And yet it's not that the artist in any one place couldn't do art like the others. It's that we absorb what is around us. And then what, what humans love to do, and this is the thing you mentioned at the beginning about the guy at the cliff, is we love to hit this balance between novelty and familiarity. So, so that means you absorb your culture and you make a step forward from there. You could, if you wanted to, Jason, you could suddenly paint like a 19th century Japanese painter, but it wouldn't make sense in the context of your culture. It wouldn't catch on. So what we do is we absorb everything around us and we crunch it up and make, make next steps. And by the way, your brain is always generating under the hood all of these possible things you could do. Well, what if I bent this like this? What if I broke this and made these other two things? What if I blended these two ideas together? Uh, your brain's always doing that. Most of the ideas that it comes up with are not particularly good, but every once in a while, there's one idea in there that that has some meaning. It actually, you know, works for you and for your culture, and then that that pushes things forward. As a result of this, we've had this unbelievable bootstrapping as a civilization, 
you know, if you look at things like the invention of agriculture and the invention of writing and so on, these things are thousands of years apart. But all of a sudden, in this last century, things have absolutely blown up in terms of the, the rate at which we're discovering and inventing things. And it's because we now have almost 8 billion brains that are all bootstrapping off one another and bending and breaking and blending all of their inputs to come up with new ideas. And you, and you talk a little bit about how cultural context and the moment in history uh, are important in terms of how the creative thing that somebody has made is received or not. I was thinking about Van Gogh and I was thinking about how during his own lifetime, for the most part, he was penniless and unrecognized and how we now understand him to be this great genius. How does that how does that example kind of what what, what does that mean in, in, in the way that you understand how creativity functions in history? Well, one thing that means is that it's very important that we don't get caught in the trap of saying, Okay, well, this person's really creative and this person's not so creative uh, for two reasons. One is that this is basic software that runs in every human brain. I mean, this is how the brain works. It absorbs things and crunches them up and spits out new versions. But, but the thing is, there's what I've noticed is I've been um, talking about this book, uh, which just came out, is that I often get a question about, oh, well, but aren't there some people who are real geniuses and others who aren't? And the, the danger, I think, in that is that exactly as you pointed out, some people are not recognized in their lifetime and then later they are. And then who knows, maybe maybe 500 years from now, we won't think Van Gogh is a big deal at all. Um, and other people, in contrast, are recognized in their lifetime and everyone thinks it's the greatest thing. And then, you know, they're quickly forgotten because in fact, their contribution wasn't terribly lasting. And it's just really hard to know uh, who's who in there and, and who sticks around and who doesn't has everything to do with very complicated networks of social interaction and where the world ends up going and so on. So, so the point that I'm wanting to emphasize is that, you know, the ability to crunch things up and make something new, this is something that everybody's brain does and what, how you're recognized by history is, you know, that's anybody's guess. Right. I mean, but so do you, do you have any thoughts about People who, I mean, I know that there are cultural reasons or family, you know, reason, thing, moments, psychological moments in childhood, why someone might grow up thinking I'm not a creative person. But there seem to be some kind of profound differences in the ways different people think, right? Some people seem to be kind of big picture creative thinkers constantly throwing ideas together, others more kind of concrete, analytical, not as good at multitasking, blending, and so on. How does that factor in? Well, I would say two things. One is that um, we're all doing this all the time, because as I said, this is a basic cognitive operation. So anytime you're trying to figure out what do I eat, what's in my refrigerator, or you're thinking of some, you know, what you're going to say next, or some new musical riff, or a patent, or whatever it is that you're thinking about next, like everybody's doing this stuff all the time, this bending, breaking, and blending of their, of their inputs. But the other thing that's really important to emphasize here is the importance of what this teaches us about how to run our educational systems so that we can actually cultivate this. And this is because what brains do most of the time is try to automatize tasks. So, you know, things like walking and talking and eating are extraordinarily complicated brain tasks, but you're not even aware of how you do them because your brain just says, okay, well, I'm doing this a lot, so I'm just going to automatize this and so on. 
And creativity is kind of this opportunity we have with just this little, you know, the remaining cycles of our brain to, to work on, okay, I'm really going to, you know, make something new here, but this has to be cultivated and there are ways to cultivate it. And so the important part for educational systems is that we are running our schools the way we have since the industrial revolution, where we have kids learn a whole lot of just in case information you know, just in case you ever need to know that the Battle of Hastings was in 1066, we're going to teach you that and test you on it and so on. That's unfortunately not really that great a way to position our children for the, for the upcoming world, which is, as we've talked about in several ways already, is moving really fast and changing rapidly. And what kids really need is cognitive flexibility. They need to learn how to absorb things and be creative and try out new new versions of things because as i said everything's changing fast they're not going to become a farmer and stay that their whole career and so the way to teach that we we make an argument for this in the book but essentially the short version is that kids need to know the foundation so they need to learn skills and so on but the really important part is to have them springboard from there and and do their own versions of things. And that's the piece that's missing almost always. And by the way, this can be missing in arts classes too. Just because a school has arts doesn't mean they're doing it right. You know, you can go to an arts class and and learn how to paint like Picasso and Manet and Kandinsky. And then the class ends and that's all you've learned is how to imitate. You know, you do these practice studies. That's not creativity. The creativity is learning all these things and then mashing it up and making your own versions of things and finding your own style. I, I think part of the problem is um, reverence. I mean, maybe this, you know, maybe it's a hangover from the from industrial revolution purposes where we were training people to do things by rote, you know, so that they would do that later. But but I also think there's this thing about reverence. Like we we don't we don't teach children well enough that language, that that Picasso, that all of these things that are available to them from human history are theirs to mess with, you know? Like we want them to learn to kind of respect these things in their channels and to learn and to, you know, in a sense, um, abase themselves at the feet of the masters. That's exactly right. And this is one of the big emphases we make in the book is about it, it, it's great to cherish the past, but you shouldn't ever treat it as untouchable. And, and one of the things we, uh, one of our sort of terms that we came up with in the writing of this was this issue about breaking good, which is instead of breaking bad, the idea is take things that you love and mash them up and crash them together and, and this sort of thing to make something new that's actually the best material to use to make the new thing. Right. Well, I, and then... And then there's that thing, which I, th I thought this quote was attributed to Picasso, or maybe it was just told to me in the context of Picasso, where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, of course, Picasso was allowed to do all of that crazy stuff that he did because he had first mastered the principles of drawing. You know, you must first you have to know what you're doing and then you can break things up. I mean, you seem to be saying something different, but I recall I recall hearing that old saw from people that, you know, you must you must learn to paint the the perfect shadow before you start foraying into cubism. I actually think it is useful to learn what's come before. So I, I went to a Picasso museum in Barcelona and I saw these incredible oil paintings that he had done at the age of 16, where he was, I mean, he'd absolutely mastered what came before him. And then he springboarded off of that to do his own versions of things. And I think that's sort of 
path is quite useful. In other words, because we take in the world around us, it's really useful to learn, okay, this is the foundation I'm sitting on top of. So now when I make a change to that, I'm not doing something that's naive. I'm doing something that really rests on top of all the great stuff that's come before. And now's my chance to break good. Yeah. And maybe sometimes it also happens half and half, like simultaneously, like I'm thinking of Richard Feynman, who you bring up in the book and how like as a kid, he was pretty irreverent in the sense of just messing with stuff, taking radios apart, you know, trying to and at the same time teaching himself, you know, algebra and calculus, but never, I think, uh, reluctant to experiment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Feynman wouldn't have been able to in other words, let's say he had said, okay, I'm not going to take apart radios and I'm not going to learn what's come before me, but instead I'm just going to try to reinvent everything. Then by the end of his brilliant life, he would have gotten up to the 18th century or something. Right, right, right. So so the point is it's really useful to figure out what's come before you and then leap from there. One of the things Feynman did that was interesting is he always, you know, the way that he was taught is the way that most of us are taught where you're trying to solve some problem and the answer's in the back of the book already But what he would do at least is figure out the answer in the back of the book and then come up with as many ways as he was able to, to get to that answer by creating different pathways uh, to get himself there. And that was a very creative way to, to learn. Right, right. What I was, what I was trying to get at before is that he sort of did a hybrid, like in taking apart a radio, you're learning what went before you, but you're also daring to risk breaking it or something. You know what I mean? You're you're both you're not simply studying a radio manual for 10 years. You're actually, you know, you're being irreverent in a way and at the same time reverent. You know, you're both learning. Yeah, th- yeah exactly. This is the issue about cherishing the past but being willing to to break it. Yeah. Yeah, the the last thing I wanted to say before we get to the second half of the show is or to ask you about is when we when we look at the future and we look at artificial intelligence, right? It was kind of received wisdom for a long time that like, okay, the machines are gonna be really good at analyzing stuff and they're gonna be really good at processing things quickly, but our human dif- differentiator is always gonna be this kind of big picture creativity, right? And now, but when you talk to some AI researchers at this point, it's not clear that that that's really the case either. I mean, how how do you what are you seeing coming down the pike in terms of like, I mean, they're trying to teach machines to write poetry. They're trying to teach them to write songs. They say that at some point they'll be able to do it, you know, in a way that might be indistinguishable from humans. Do you think this creativity of ours will differentiate us forever, or we're going to be able to imitate it, or don't know? Or? So so let me say a couple things on that. So one is that you know the brain is an incredibly complex device that would take about a zettabyte uh, to, to, to reproduce in a computer and impersonate. But in the end, it is just a machine. And so what that means is that in theory, it should be possible when we figure out the right sorts of principles to, uh, to imitate it with other machinery. So in theory, we should be able to impersonate it. As it stands right now in 2017, AI is really good at categorization. So looking at billions of pictures and saying, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a horse and stuff like that. That by itself isn't terribly creative. People are trying other things. For example, Google Deep Dream is working on uh, taking different kinds of styles and pictures and smashing things together. So you get these really weird looking psychedelic pictures. And that's 
kind of creative, but I should say there's, there's two halves to creativity. One is generating weird, interesting new things, but the other one is filtering. The other half of it is saying, okay, look, I just came up with 10 ideas and actually these nine kind of stink and this 10th one, maybe this will work, you know, that kind of thing. And computers actually aren't any good at doing that right now. And the reason they're not good at doing that is because they're not humans. They don't know what matters to us. So it may be that computers are able to impress one another with some sort of creativity, but they're not really going to impress us that much. Just as an example, the thing about AI writing poetry, it all really stinks. And the only time that people ever say like, oh, that's kind of interesting is when the is when the computer puts together some string of words where you think, oh, that's weird and mysterious, but it's not actually because it's good poetry. It's just because it, it sounds surprising somehow. So anyway, computers aren't any good at doing filtering now. And again, it's not to say that they can't get there. One of the suggestions that we make in the book that I, I really like is this issue that when you look at what humans do in a society, humans spend a lot of their time trying to impress and surprise each other. So you know, if you if you look around the next time you're at a dinner party at, at the things everybody's saying, everyone's trying to say something that everyone else will go, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Or, oh, that's funny. Or, oh, that's interesting. That's creative. Whatever the thing is, we spend much of our time trying to do that. And I think this is actually a big part of why our society is as rich as it is with creative acts, because we really are driven to surprise and impress each other. So, so the suggestion we make in the book is if you really want to make AI great, what you should do is build a society of AI agents that are all trying to surprise and impress one another. And so each computer is trying to come up with something new that the other ones haven't thought of. And that's probably the way to get there. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they are already or soon will be working on making the machines talk to each other in that way. I mean, machine learning then would enable them presumably to remember the ways in which they'd surprised each other before and then build upon them and so on. Um, so that, that brings us to the second half of the show. Um, second half of the show is a kind of a, a game of conversation starters. The video producers of Big Think have picked short videos from Big Think's archives. Um, I haven't seen them. You haven't seen them. We'll watch them and then we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Great. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's, let's start with the first one and this will be Isaac Lidsky and it's called How Going Blind Showed One Man the Light. I lost my sight sort of progressively over time. Uh, my photoreceptor cells of my retina uh, kind of ceased to function and die. So if you picture like a jumbotron screen at an arena and imagine the bulbs on that screen kind of slowly and randomly break over time. Uh, that's, that's what happened uh, to me. So, you know, at first, it's, uh, you know, maybe you, not, you don't even notice it, then it maybe gets a little annoying. Uh, eventually, uh, you have some, some issues sort of making out the image. For me, sight became this sort of bizarre experience where objects would, you know, appear and then morph into other objects and, and disappear, kind of depending on uh, what information I had or, or uh, you know, how, what kind of clues I had. It was just sort of this conscious, arduous process to see. What was amazing is, given that experience, I literally saw firsthand how uh, powerful our minds are to create the reality we experience, to create this immersive uh, experience of sight, for example, which I always thought was you know, objective and, and true and not much to it. Uh, but I saw that that's not the case at all, right? Um, sight is this unique, personal, virtual experience that our minds create. 
So the thing that struck me about the video is it touches on this issue very powerfully about the internal model. In other words, what we see in the world is what we think we're seeing out there. Most of vision is an internal process happening completely within your brain. And the, the information dribbling in through your retinas is just a small part of, of what you're actually perceiving. So um, it's about 5% of the information of your visual stream is coming in through your retinas and the rest is all internally generated given your expectations about the world. And just, just to clarify this point, when you are asleep and dreaming, your eyes are closed and yet you're having full rich visual experience, which means you don't need your eyes for seeing. It's just that when you're awake, it's the same process as dreaming. This is what we're experiencing right now is, is awake dreaming. So the point is, when Isaac was losing his photoreceptors, his brain kept going, and that's why he, he mentioned that he was seeing some interesting, weird things where one thing morphs into another and so on. This is what always happens as people go blind is that they, their brain just creates versions of what they're seeing. It's sort of a smooth transition that he went through from seeing to dreaming. And there's something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. He was a physician in the 1700s who, who described exactly this kind of thing. As people go blind, the way that they have these hallucinations about what's going on. And often people, as they're going blind, don't realize that they're going blind. And they're having weird hallucinations and they don't mention it to anybody because they're afraid people will think they're, they're losing their minds. So anyway, the point is that your whole interpretation of the world is whatever your brain is telling you. It's all happening on the inside. And so um, this is part of what makes us such an interesting species is that, you know, everybody's creative acts will come from whatever their own internal world is. In other words, my brain and your brain, it's like two separate planets where I've absorbed all of my life experiences and you've absorbed all of your life experiences. And even though we generally roughly feel like, oh, hey, we got the same, uh, you know, we're seeing the same things out there. We might be seeing the world a bit differently from one another and everybody is seeing the world a bit differently. And this is part of what's really lovely about the creative acts that we all do is that we're all doing it from our own perspective. So from a, from a neuroscientific standpoint, how do you know that? How do you see that? I mean, that is to say, like, my subjective understanding, like I can describe to you what I think I'm seeing in this room right now. And if you were here with me, you would describe what you saw. And like you said, they'd probably sound relatively similar. But what you're saying, which I'm trying to understand, is this idea that we are actually awake dreaming that, that you said 5% of what I'm of what is creating this mental representation is coming from the what I'm seeing from the light bouncing into my retinas. So then how do you how do you all know that? Like, how do you w know what the other ninety five percent is? And so, yeah. so the five percent is specifically it's the if you look at the visual cortex, which is the back of your head, five percent is the number of fibers coming in there from the from the retina, and it passes through another part of the brain called the thalamus, and so on. But but the point is that all the rest coming into the visual cortex is feedback from other areas, from higher areas, from the thalamus, and so on. 
So in other words, only 5% of the input, just physically from a neuroscience point of view, is, is actually originating at the retina and all the rest is feedback. So the rest is, is memory and, and like of what a chair looks like and what the color white is. Exactly. And, so and what we actually do is when you're looking around at your office right now, you pay attention to particular things to incorporate them into your model. So just as an example, I'm sitting in a conference room right now and I know that there's a, a white table here and there's a certain number of chairs and so on. So I, I, I'm kind of seeing that. But if I really start paying attention, okay, what exactly is written on the dry erase board here? Then I can incorporate that into my model. If I say, okay, where exactly is my coffee cup? Then I can incorporate that into my model and so on. But it's only by paying attention and asking all these internal questions questions that I that I expand on that that model. So if something really novel is happening in my environment, like if a monster suddenly appears in front of me, then will more will a greater percentage of the input be coming from my environment because I will suddenly start going, oh, that's very different from what I would expect. That's exactly right. Your brain's job is to predict away the world. It's trying to predict everything and as long as it's doing a pretty good job, it doesn't even to, it doesn't even have to pay attention. But what attention and consciousness is about is violations of expectations. So as soon as the monster walks in the room, I think, oh my gosh, that wasn't predicted by my internal model. So then I turn my <laughs> eyes over there and I really pull in a lot of information about that. But I, I am interested. I mean, if, it, if it's not, if, if, we're, if you don't mind going there, I am also interested in this question, this question of constraints and limitations and sort of how that interacts with creativity. Like when we're trying to solve a, uh, a complex problem, like is it beneficial, do you think, to have you know, a limited palette, for example, seven colors to work with as opposed to 700 in terms of your likelihood of generating something novel as opposed to becoming sort of lost in possibilities? I think that's right. I, I don't have a I don't have a well-developed theory about constraints right now, but I have noticed as I've been uh, going around and talking about this book with people that it seems to be a theme that emerges um, for myself. You know, I so I'm a neuroscientist and I have a company here in Palo Alto, but I also write. I write literary fiction, and for myself, I noticed that. As life has gone on, I have smaller and smaller little windows of time to get writing done. And that often helps because I say, oh, gosh, I've got 60 minutes on this airplane ride to really write something. And so then I get something done. And as opposed to if I quit all of my other work and I said, I'm just going to be a writer and have the wind blow through my hair and sit and write books, I probably wouldn't get as much done. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I recall from high school that writing sonnets was extremely powerful. I mean, when I discovered the sonnet form, it was like, oh, you know, having to having to fit your thoughts into that box, you know, that that pentameter, it seemed to generate things that I don't know how that where they would have come from otherwise. Yeah, I was just uh, two days ago, I was in Belfast, Ireland, and I was talking with my friend Dan Weiss, who's the showrunner for Game of Thrones. And I was talking to him about the writing process that he and David Benioff, his fellow showrunner, what they do. And, you know, Dan had uh, been studying James Joyce before that and written a big thesis on James Joyce and so on. But now he's in a very different kind of position where they have constraints like you wouldn't believe where they have to write the next script and the next script and, and everything's on a deadline. And he actually finds that really helpful as opposed to sitting around and thinking about James Joyce and what you're going to write next and so on. They don't have any time to sit around and think about what they're going to write. And of course, they write incredible stuff 
um, but they're really helped by the constraints. Oh, that yeah, that's incredible. And they're also, of course, yeah, locked into the characters and the storyline and all of those sorts of things. So, so whatever. Um whatever affordances they find, whatever bends or breaks or blends have to be sort of within that highly constrained world. Exactly. I think we have time for one more of the surprise videos. So the second one is Michael Slaby, and the video is called Why Hourly Wages Don't Make Sense, But a 30-Hour Workweek Does. Hourly wages make no sense. And it might be the case that if we did a better job sharing in that value creation and spreading the cost of disruption around more effectively, maybe we only need to work 30 hours a week. And maybe that is full employment. And maybe we don't need seven jobs. Maybe we just need to do a better job sharing the value we're creating and that leaves more time to be parents. I don't know that we need to take as a given the 40 hour work week. Most other countries don't and haven't for a long time. Look, I, I think this concept of shared success and collective progress leads us toward a conversation that invites the question of universal basic income. I think it's a really interesting idea. I, I'm not an expert in it, and I'm not convinced that it's the only answer. I think things like requiring companies to do things like profit sharing is part of the same conversation. Right, that ultimately what universal basic income is about is that we are collectively creating value and we should collectively share in that value. Accepting the suffering of any of us makes all of us poorer and makes all of us less well off. Is the answer government, like a minimum, a, a check from a government that creates a minimum layer? Maybe. That may be exactly the kind of public good that the government should create. The question is, who gets it? Which is not to say it's a bad idea. I just think it's a lot more complicated at the point of implementation than most people talk about. Who qualifies? What if I make enough money? I mean, this is a similar conversation to welfare. Who qualifies? At what point does, you know, am I making enough money that I don't qualify for that? And does that create a valley or a cliff in my economic well-being and progress that creates problems for people, that people get stuck in this valley, right? Which is very true with especially welfare where you must be working to get to benefit from welfare. The work first mentality that started in the 80s means that you can't, like for instance, study while on welfare because you have to work full time. And so you can study at night and I know, yes, you can go to, go to work and you can study at the same time. But it creates incentives that create this weird valley in the middle of, of sort of the way welfare systems get, our welfare system gets executed in the United States. I think that's the kind of thing that we have to be really, really conscious and careful of with universal basic income. I think the concept that anybody, that we should accept that anybody, anybody living in poverty shouldn't be acceptable to us. There are, we, have, we have enough wealth and value and opportunity in this country for that not to be true. So I, I think from watching that video, what I love about this in the context of creativity is that as a society, we're constantly trying to come up with new methods for this. We're bothered by things like some people of our society being impoverished while other people are, are extraordinarily wealthy. And the, the, just taking universal basic income as an example, it's absolutely a lovely idea that we're constantly coming up with new versions of things, even welfare. I mean, everyone's got criticisms of the welfare system, but that was an idea at some point. That was an idea that someone said, hey, there's, 
there's a way we might solve this. And, and if we could cut forward to 50 years from now, there'll have been three further ideas about, hey, here's a good solution to this. And this is what's so extraordinary about our species. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think I'd like to think that as we globalize, right, and as we become kind of more collectively aware of the big picture of hum human reality on Earth, that that puts us in a better position maybe to think big in terms of like how are people how are people living? I mean, obviously there are like you know we we end up having to do triage because there you know there are people starving to death right so that 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 kind of comes first but there there's a big picture of sort of like what what is life supposed to be for our species right we are no longer just sort of digging in the mud trying to figure out what we're doing or at least collectively so what do we want and how do we get there you know I mean, the really interesting part is that there is no answer to what is life supposed to be because there is no supposed to. But what's cool about human creativity is just that we keep coming up with, all right, look, one thing that has become very important to our species very, very recently is this idea of, of morality for the whole society, for saying we don't want anybody to suffer. And of course, things like starvation are still a problem in the world, but a heck of a lot less than they used to be for various reasons, for because of scientific advances, but also because people really care about this. And there's lots of charity work and so on, which I, I don't mean to imply at all that, that it's over and that we shouldn't keep pushing on this as hard as we can, but we are really moving in the right direction with this stuff. And so it's not so much a question of what is life supposed to be, but what do we collectively want it to be for everybody, for the poorest member of our society? Yeah, what... What can it be? What do we want? Because it seems like things like the decline of violence, uh, as described in Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, you know, a lot of that happened, seems to have happened sort of blindly just through the evolution of society. I'm not saying that nobody intentionally was less violent, but, but we're in a position maybe to look at the scope of history and say, where do we want to go together how do we get there is there such a place you know yeah exactly and i actually th this is a, a quick tangent but one of the arguments about why violence went down points to the invention of the printing press in 1493 and the idea is that once everybody started getting books what that allowed us was a way to empathize with one another and that helped reduce violence because I could read a book and step into another character's shoes and for the first time in my life understand what it's like to be this other person and then this other person, this other person and so on. And so one of the arguments is that that really helped with human empathy to be able to read literature. I think, and you know, I'm speaking as someone who lives in Silicon Valley, but I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about what's going to happen with VR, not in terms of the gaming and silly stuff like that, but in terms of increasing empathy to a whole deeper level where I can really step in and know what it is like to be someone else. And something that my wife and I have been talking about a lot lately is building meeting apps. So let's say you and I are going to have a meeting in virtual reality. So we both put on our glasses, but in the app, you happen to be, um, you know, a, a Native American who's 70 years old, and I happen to be a, a girl from Nairobi who's 13. And and what, while we're having our meeting, there are mirrors in this VR room, and we can see ourselves and each other. And the question is, how does that change the meeting? And more importantly, how does that increase our empathy? If every time I step into a meeting, I'm a different person of a different age, different gender, different nationality. <laughs> if we were used to this kind of thing, how would that change the way we see the world? And I think it would really improve things to the next level. 
David Eagleman, I, I really appreciated talking with you today. Um, thanks so much for being, being on Think Again. This was a great conversation. Great. Thanks, Jason. Terrific to talk to you. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Think Again. Halloween is fast approaching. I hope that if you have little ones, that they have really cool costumes. My son is going to be a Dalek from Doctor Who, and we are trying to make a giant life-size poster of a Dalek into a costume, so we'll see how that goes. If you are enjoying the show and you want to keep the conversation going um, in a more direct way, come join us on Facebook. It's a private group that we have there called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. You just search in the big search bar and uh, request to join, and I'll let you in. And it's a way to talk directly to me and to other people who are enjoying the show about all kinds of things, all kinds of ideas that are on your mind, the shows themselves, and so on. So please join us there. We've got a lively conversation going. 